Hey there, are you sick and tired of feeling sick and tired? Join Adol Kozilski and Fagy Stern as they explore ways to reverse chronic illness and achieve vibrant health. Your health is your only wealth and together we can be better. Hashtag Healthy You, Wealthy You. And a beautiful good morning to all the listeners on Chai FM. I am Adol Kozilski and as always I am joined in the studio or our virtual studio with my co-partner Fagy. Good morning. Good morning, Adol. How are you attaching to your baby is going to be the question we are going to explore today. Um, we have <laughs> she's had... she's constantly attached to me, Adol. <laughs> We're, we've got a very good <laughs> attachment going on oh, over fantastic. there. Thank God. <laughs> well, Peggy, you can leave. There's nothing to discuss. No, I'm joking. <laughs> All we need today is a we... pout and a kangaroo, and they're attached. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And that's the way it actually should be. Uh, today we are going to discuss not something physical. We're always looking at our health. And, of course, we know that our health is not only our physical health, but it is our emotional health, our spiritual health, our mental health. And today we are going to be exploring attachment theory, meaning how our early childhood relationships and our environment impact our relationships with other people and how we view ourselves. And of course, there is, there needs to be a quality about our early childhood environments because when we get older, we see that we need um, to look back on that in order to self-regulate, stress manage, and have intimate relationships. And everything is obviously crucial in order to be a, a, a fully functional human being. Today, it's our pleasure to invite back onto the show Esther Hecht. She is a social, emotional learning coach. We have had a show with her before. You're most welcome to uh, look back on our podcast. But today, she's also joined with Tovi Steiner, who is a counseling psychologist at Psych Central and a mom of three boys, and we are going to be discussing emotional attachment. If you'd like to join the conversation, 34519 is our SMS line, 061-895-1019. Be brave, ask questions, even debate with us. It's most welcome. So with no further ado, Esther, good morning. Good morning. It's so great to be back. Thank you. And Tovi, how are you? How's it, everyone? So nice to be here. Right, so let's start off with just working, and I guess the two of you will work in tandem as to who will answer the questions. How did the two of you connect on this topic of emotional attachment? So um, I actually offer conscious and connected parenting courses, which we spoke a little bit about when I was on the show last time. Um, Tavia and I go way back. We're friends. Um, but last year she took this one of my courses, and a lot of the discussions – that we were having on the course and off the course, kept coming back to this idea of those, how important those early childhood relationships are and how they impact our later lives and how we view ourselves later on. Um, and Tovi shared with me her work with attachment theory, and I realized how much it aligned with so much of what I was sharing on my courses. And the two of us actually just completed an eight-week course together with Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, the topic was on addiction, which is a whole other conversation, but how our early childhood relationships and environment impact later addictions as well. Um, and it's funny because I was saying to Tovi the other night that this concept of attachment theory, um, the word theory almost seems like it hasn't been proven yet, right? And I said to Tovi, I'm like, I'm not sure why it's called a theory because it's something that I believe to be so, so true and something that not many people or parents or educators know about. Um, 
And I always say that we do our best until we know better. And now we know better based on the research how impactful those early years are. Um, and I and I said to Tavi, I'm like, I want to be able to like shout this off the roof, rooftops. And so I'm really grateful we have this opportunity to share here with you today. Well, fantastic. And certainly Chai FM um, is quite a rooftop and uh, we are <laughs> is, is pretty far. So, Toby, let's kick it off. And for the listeners who, who don't know or only know a little, I think it's, it's important to explore and understand the theory, even though, um, as, uh, as Esther just said, it's not theory, the, the, the mm-hmm. practice of attachment. What is attachment theory? So exactly what Esther said, we're, we're um, petitioning and campaigning to change it to attachment truth. But um, if you think about the word attachment, it's really just this need to be close to someone. But as for a newborn baby, it's actually their driving force for survival. And if you think about it in the psychological realm, attachment is actually at the heart of all our social functioning and all our later relationships. Um, in the human domain, like from person to person and for the baby, what they're trying to do is they're pursuing uh, an attachment and they're trying their very best to preserve it. How we form this initial attachment bond with our primary caregiver, um, and like I said before, it's, you know, we use it interchangeably with mother, but in many contexts, a primary caregiver could be another significant person. Through this relationship, everything develops, personality development, interpersonal functioning, mental health, every single way in which the child will then form a picture of their world and the lens through which they view themselves is all based on this primary first relationship. What stage would you say that is? From one age to one age, or is it something that just constantly carries on for Mm. for the rest of their lives? Mm. Mm. That's a great question. So it's actually from the moment they're born, and there are the most incredible studies done that, um, first of all, that a baby's, our site is 23 centimeters, which is if the mother's craving the child and nursing the child, that is the distance from the baby's eye to the mother's eye. So a baby is literally hardwired to connect to the mother or the primary caregiver. From the moment they're born, there's been studies from babies hours old and days old who are able to recognize the smell of their mother from someone else, who are able to recognize the voice of their mother compared to someone else. So from the very, very beginning, the baby is... It, it is a survival instinct because babies are born so helpless, but it also highlights the fact that there's huge elements of the child's brain that is being developed outside of the womb. And Esther, I'm sure we'll speak about this. This is something Esther is so passionate about. Um, and that, that the child it is all developing while the child is relating to the mother primary caregiver. And this is from, we say the first three years are so fundamental, but as you know, we, this neuroplasticity is really, really um, gaining traction in terms of also theories that it is something that can be altered and impacted at a later stage. But that primary caregiver relationship from birth is so, so fundamental. Surely it maybe it even goes back as I'm, as I'm hearing you talk, goes back mm-hmm. into the womb that the baby is already being wired up to understand who's like the primary giver, like just by hearing the voices, you know, and, and just being carried around for nine months. Absolutely. All of that happens. All of that's primed in the womb. And the further studies that are coming out, I think what, what the attachment theory began in the late 1940s, but now with technology, what's, what we're able to actually understand what's going on in the womb, the baby is able to experience. The studies show 
that the mother's emotional and mental state while she is while the baby is in utero impacts the baby. And and I always like want to have a disclaimer with this that it's not about creating pressure for moms because at the same time you also show the baby the baby experiences the full gamut of emotion. A mother could experience adrenaline just by getting a fright about something. She could experience happiness, sadness. So it's not that the mother needs to be in a serene, perfect state. Almost that would be not preparing the baby for the real world because the real world is that we feel all emotions. So the baby feeling all emotions within a healthy range during um, its experience in utero is so valuable because it gives the baby a chance to experience them later on. And the impact on the baby, there's studies showing that the way the mother feels towards the baby, the baby in utero will either move towards the mother or almost tries to move away. Wow. That's so interesting. It it, it is absolutely incredible. And if you think about it, Judaism has taught us that way back. You know, we're talking about emotional health today, but even from spiritual health, um, a a pregnant mother in in a Jewish context um, is asked to look at positive things and see positive things, feel positive things because it affects the baby. And as you said correctly, you know, you can't put a mother under pressure that she has to be in the most perfect space, uh, space her entire pregnancy. But certainly, um, we, we need to be cognizant of the fact that it does affect the baby. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosulski and Fagy Stern. Welcome back, and we are discussing attachment theory with Tovi Steiner and Esther Hecht. If you would like to uh, join the conversation, 34519 is our SMS number, 061-895-1019. Tovi, um, you know, there's a lot of words that float in and out um, psychologically, and uh, the, the one I think that <laughs> pertains to us is, what is the difference between attachment and attunement? Attachment is really this, as I said before, this like primal need that the baby is going to just attach to the primary caregiver. And there have been studies that have shown um, by Mary Ainsworth, who came after Bowlby, and she developed a strange situation where the child would be with the mother, then the mother would leave and the baby would return. And observing the way the baby would leave, um, the baby would react while the mother left, and then how the baby would respond when the mother returned, uh, enabled her to classify these different types of attachment. And what came out of that, which is so important, and I'm getting to your answer about what um, attunement is, that a baby will attach to the primary caregiver in whichever way the primary caregiver, being the adult at that stage, decides the kind of attachment they have. So the, what we're saying here is that the baby will attach to who, whomever is the primary caregiver, but the nature of the attachment is what we refer to when we talk about attunement. And attunement is really this connectedness, this feeling that the mother actually feels towards the baby, and the baby will adapt. So if the mother feels hostile feelings towards her baby or overwhelmed or anxious, that's the way the baby will learn to re- to interact with its primary caregiver. And if it's a secure attachment where the baby feels that there is this, recipro- this reciprocity, this connection, this joy, this happiness, then that's how the baby will attached to its primary caregiver. So attunement is really, I would say, the nuance of each kind of attachment, if that makes sense. Meaning so, a, a, a child has, will, will attach just simply because that's the nature. And exactly. Then, and, and then you've got like, kind of like the, the, fine, the fine waves that happen, like how they, how they can think. And obviously just be, the, 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 the interplay between attachment and attunement um, will, will, will vacillate 
you know, because the mother's not perfect all the time. We're not always Absolutely. going to attach lovingly. We might, we might have a bad day and just let it up screaming at the, you know, the guy up, up on the pole outside trying to fix your Wi-Fi. And so when you pick up your baby, you're not going to go, oh, hello, kuchiku, you know, you're going to be a pretty aggravated mother. Absolutely. And that's actually very valuable because again, we're teaching the child in that experience that the world in which they will engage with at one point will not always be cushioned and loving and perfect. But I think it's about how the mother then responds and how the baby then regulates. In one of the, um, like I said before, the strange situation, they showed that there was a baby who was ambivalent, that the mother would leave and the baby wouldn't respond. And the mother would, when the mother came back, the baby showed no difference. But actually when they measured the baby's heart rate, the baby was in hyperarousal. So the baby wasn't able, it's, um, um, the one book that Esther gave me in um, The Body Keeps the Score, he uses the word that the baby was dealing but not feeling. So the baby mm. dealt with it but didn't show that they were actually feeling, although they, they were. So the mother's job then is to then help the baby self-regulate through her then, oh, I'm, I calm down. So we talk about in psychology this concept of rupture and repair. Rupture happens. There will be a rupture at some point in the relationship. The important point, I guess, is how it's repaired. And also that the most important communications that are happening between the mother and baby are these ones that are unconscious because the baby is pre-verbal. The baby cannot put into words, oh, there was a man outside, so my mom was super irritated. The baby will feel the irritation as maybe an uncomfortable, overwhelming feeling, and then the mom will breathe and regulate herself and then bring the baby's heart rate down. I love so when it comes, so one to, of the, when it comes to repair, obviously the neuroplasticity comes into play, that if, that if a kid or a baby does have an issue with whatever they had to deal with at that time, they will be able to repair it. And then again, another question is, if a mother mm. obviously goes through all that anxiety and mm. shows the child, you know, those hectic emotions, obviously some things are not in the mother's control. At what stage does a mother kind of look at it when, they, when things do get better? How do they deal with it? And how do they do the repair? So if we talk about a newborn in that example, the, the, the repair would be her self-regulating herself because the baby's unable to self-regulate and the baby regulates based on the mom. So the mother could even say, whoa, mommy got so angry and the baby would not be able to understand the words but understand the feeling of that, whoa, mom was, you know, and then, and I think that um, with with children, and and this is something that Esther speaks to a lot in her conscious discipline course. And I think that there's a lot about that being able to to be honest about your feeling. Mom was really angry, and the way that mom screamed at everyone was just mom was really angry. And next time I'm going to breathe like we practice together. So in that moment, we're teaching our kids that we also have very overwhelming experiences that we don't always know how to deal with. And even adults get into a space where they get overwhelmed. And that's okay. It's about, like I say, the repair is more important sometimes than the rupture. Correct. Um, Esther, and I just one more thing, early... one more thing on the attachment um, and attunement. The way I like to look at it is that almost like the attachment is that physical attachment, just being there with the child. But the attunement is really sharing that emotional space and really being aware of your emotions and what sort of space you and the baby are sharing. Um, which, mm-hmm. like we said, it's, it falls under the attachment, but it's much more nuanced. Right. So sharing of emotional space. Able, sorry. Even for a mother to be able to actually show that emotion will allow them to, to kind of get over it and, and have more of an attachment. Absolutely. So rupture and repair, and this is valuable in our relationship with our children, and this is even valuable in our relationships with adult others. 
is about how you come back, how you repair, actually then creates a depth in the relationship that wasn't there before. So rupture is not something to be afraid of. Rupture is a part of life. And repair actually is such a value because it creates this this closeness. We've now been through something hard together. We've processed it. We've managed it. We've discussed what our feelings are. And when you come out on the other side, the repair is so impactful. That's incredible. Um, Esther, and just how something, do you, yes. Sorry. Something when Esther said, this sharing of emotional space, and I, there's this study done, which I find so incredible, where the uh, mother and baby are interacting over, um, it's called the double TV experiment. But really, if you could imagine it over like a WhatsApp video or a FaceTime, the mother and baby are interacting and they're coochie-cooing and talking, and, and the baby's interacting with the mother and very happy. And then what they do is they then replay it to the baby, not in real time. And the baby gets extremely distressed because it feels it's a misattunement because it's not actually what the baby's doing in real time. And the babies were able to feel that. So when we talk about attunement and Esther says this sharing of emotional space, when it's not shared emotional space, when it's not in real time, when it's something that, acted. you know, yeah, acted, babies are really able to feel it and it causes them distress. And what's fascinating is, is that, we can pretend and act to adults easier than to infants and babies because I can put on a happy face and a smile and see a friend. She won't really know what's going on inside of me, but a baby can actually pick up on that energy in that emotional space better than an adult. Um, I always remember the story of um, that Dr. Gabor Mate shares in one of his books about when he was a baby during the Holocaust and his mother called her doctor and said, um, I don't know what to do with Gabor. He doesn't stop crying. It was like the beginning of the Holocaust. And he said to her, Mrs. Mate, all the Jewish babies are crying. What did they know about the Holocaust? They didn't know that, you know, people were being shipped off to concentration camps, but the babies were able to feel the emotional stress and worry of their parents, even the parents who were trying their best and putting on the smiling face and, you know, doing what they needed to do for the babies, but the babies were feeling that impact and the emotional stress wow. of their mothers. Wow. I think that's an important point, you know, um, like I'm, I'm obviously much older than all of you and I've kind of like been there, done that, raised my kids. But I'm thinking like now in retrospect, you know, um, we try as mothers a, a, a lot to shield our children from, from despair or from, from, from anger or from, from anything. That's what we do. We just run around trying to shield our children from everything. And perhaps that's, that's, that's not a kindness because then we don't, give our children the gift of self-regulation or to teach them how to self-regulate. It's, it's probably better to say, mommy is really upset today. You know, I'm crying because, and it makes me sad. And this is what I'm going to do rather than just try to pretend that you're in a happy face. But really the kid, as you're saying, is attuned to you and going, nah, exactly. Mom, mom's mm-hmm. not telling exactly. the truth. Exactly. <laughs> you're, hitting the nail, you're hitting the nail on the head. I'm so mm. passionate about this because, mm. Our job as parents or educators is not to shield our children from pain because there is going to be pain in life and there is going to be things that triggers them. I always say to everyone on my course, like if you're going through life and nothing triggers you, tell me your secret because we all go through life with things triggering us. And it's really about modeling the self-regulation to our kids and being their co-regulators when they are kids because what often happens is we model unhealthy ways of dealing with stress right we'll shout or scream or avoid or blame or defend right and this is what our children learn and i always say the social emotional skills need to be modeled and need to be taught just like any other skills just like you're teaching reading just like you're teaching writing all the other skills 
Are we taking the same amount of time and energy modeling and teaching the healthy skills of dealing with your stresses in your life? And we know that the, this emotional health has impact not only emotionally, but on all other areas of our life. It's a success. It's the foundation for success in our work, our, our relationships. It's really the, probably the most important skills that you need um, as, as you're growing up. Yeah, that's, so, for that's... A, so for a parent to actually say something like, you know, I shouted at you, I was really upset and I didn't act as my best self. I'm sorry, next time I'm going to try to do better. That mm. is wow. Like, go you. Like, to be able to yeah. own up to that and say that, you're telling your child, it's okay that you sometimes get triggered and may not act in a way that you're proud of. And you can apologize and be conscious of that so that next time you might be able to be more helpful. So, so, so then, I, the, the, how, sorry, how the question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Four of us. This is the, Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. All at once. One, two, three. <laughs> Everyone so, take a breath. <laughs> then the, that's that the, the whole thing of nature nurture. Like how much of of it is genetic <laughs> that the child is super sensitive or has 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 a certain character, and then in the environment there is going to be triggers. Like which one comes first? Do they come together or one dominates so, the other? Esther, so jumping to this answer. I'm jumping. sorry, Tom. No, want you to. I want you to. Um, this actually ties into the, our, our discussion that we're having today because our brain doesn't just develop according to genetics. And exactly what you're saying, this whole discussion is a nature versus nurture. And I think that we need to actually give more credit to nurture because our genetics can predispose us, but they do not predetermine anything. Um, so something powerful that I learned in my training is that mo as humans, most of our brain growth occurs after birth, not before. Other animals, they, most of their brain growth happens before their birth and many of times their bodies as well. For humans, about 80% of our brain development uh, happens within those first three years. So by the time I am three years old, my brain is 80 to 90% adult size, where my body is only 18%. So now we realize the importance and, and how crucial those first three years are because what is happening is which circuits develop in my brain and which don't depend on my relationship with my parent or primary caregiver and my environment. So the, the example of, let's say, a child's um, eyesight, right? A child who doesn't see light, they can be born with all the wiring in their brain to be able to see. But if a child doesn't see light, if they're kept in a dark room, after a few years, they will be blind because visual circuits in our brain need light for their development. Otherwise, they won't develop develop. The same with our ability to have intimate relationships, to self-regulate, for stress regulation, for attention. These skills all depend on crucial brain circuits, and these circuits need the right conditions to develop the same way our visual circuits need light to develop. What are these conditions? The conditions of a non-stress, emotionally and consistently available parent or primary caregiver. And I'm not talking about love here because we can assume in almost every single case that a, a, a parent loves their child, right? And we can even say that the parent has the best intentions. This is not about judging or blaming or saying the parent had ill intent. What we're talking about is how stressed, how distracted, how depressed a parent may be. And the more that they are, the more that will interfere with the child's healthy brain development for those certain circuits to develop unless the parent and the child get the right support. So we very often talk about disorders and labels and it's every child needs a label these days and have this disorder. And I'm not saying these are not helpful in getting the child the help that they need, but it, in, but in truth, it's not that a disorder develops. 
It's that certain brain circuits didn't develop. And for me, this is actually such a hopeful way to look at um, you know, labels and disorders such as ADD, because when we look at it like this, we know that this is brain circuits that with the right support and the right help and the quality of a, an outside relationship, at any point you can actually rewire the brain because of neuroplasticity. And so no child or any, you know, even an adult is a lost cause because the brain always has the ability to rewire with the right support. So when we talk about nature versus nurture, I think Primarily, we have to focus on those first three years, but understand, you know, it's not about saying, oh, my God, I screwed up my child in the first three years. There's always the ability to work on the relationship and rebuild these brain circuits. Okay, but Esther, here comes the question. Mm. Let's say say the, the child grows up and they're a teenager or they're a young adult or they become an adult and their parent didn't do anything to change or fix or create this most amazing world for their child and all of a sudden... The child decides I have issues because I didn't have a good attachment to my parents and the parents are not interested or have no idea about it. They could be old school. They could be not interested, whatever it is. How is that child meant to grow or change or create a better life for themselves? So, in, I mean, I'm speaking to people almost every day about this, adults who are realizing that instead of blaming themselves and saying what's wrong with me, right, or even blaming mm-hmm. their parents because their parents were doing their best with the skills that they had, right? Like any course I ever give, I start off by saying that we do our best until we know better. Our parents were loving. They had the skills that were available to them at that time. We're very lucky now. We have a lot more research. So it's definitely not about saying I'm an adult who's struggling with intimate relationships. I'm an adult struggling with self-regulation. All my parents' faults, right? Like, and and I, I'm not going to. Yes, I think it could be also very dangerous to kind of say yes. that it's actually my parents' fault for everything. Yes. So it's not about the blaming. I think it's about being conscious of why you get triggered or why you act a certain way. And at a certain point, part of being an adult is saying taking ownership of this is who I am as a result of my nature and my nurture. And I get to choose what to do with that. If we're going to spend our time blaming, you're not going to get anywhere helpful. So really becoming conscious of why you operate the way you do and how you operate and making the choices and getting the right help. And, you know, not to, Toby's an amazing psychologist, find (laughs) someone who can find, you know, find someone who can work with you that that you can understand but not get stuck in the blaming because that's just going to keep you in the past. So what the difficulty also comes in from from where do you actually start? Do you actually say, Mm. well, my mother didn't look at me and cuckoo me and Mm. explain her emotions to me when I was three days old? Where do you you go? Because some people don't even have a memory of their childhood. Some people don't even remember how their parents Mm. reacted to them or if they Mm. were screamed at or if they were hit or Mm. if their mother was anxious and depressed one year. We don't know that. At what stage do you say, well, it's really my issue and things that I have to work on and something that I went through? So, Faye, I think, yes, so I think that if you're an adult who's really not in touch with your feelings, that is like an indicator to you Mm. that when you were a child, your feelings weren't expressed, weren't allowed to be expressed. And again, not in a, in a sense of blaming your parents. They, they had the skills and, you know, they thought they were doing the best at that time. But there's this very strong concept that Gaborma takes. Mate talks about that we have two main survival needs or two of our main survival needs are attachment and authenticity. And what happens when our attachment and authenticity come at odds with each other? Which is the one we're going to give up first is authenticity. Like Toby was saying, that attachment drive is a survival need when we were born. So let's say that expressing your feelings um, and, and being able to say, I'm sad about this and not being shamed for your feelings and given a space where you can talk about what you're really feeling and what's going on 
if that's given a space, then you don't have to choose between attachment and authenticity. But let's say your parents are not comfortable with you talking about your feelings or they shame you. and You're not a baby. Stop crying, right? You grow up and you suppress your authenticity in order to keep that relationship with your parent. You don't want your parent to get upset, right? You don't want to harm that relationship. As a child, you don't understand, you know, if if they're shaming me for this, I want to make sure that I, I can keep the attachment with them. So we end up suppressing our emotions a lot. I hope this is clear. So what happens when you're an adult and, you, and you're and you now completely not in touch with your feelings or you deal with your feelings in very unhealthy ways, you don't have to remember exactly how your parent reacted to you in those early years, but it's a sign for you that your feelings didn't really have a space when you were younger. And now is a time to start becoming comfortable with them and, and becoming more assertive about your needs and being in touch and validating yourself. All feelings are okay and allowed, right? As And we, I tell this to parents all the time. All feelings are okay, not necessarily our, all behaviors are okay. And that's where we have to guide our children. An absolutely after the ad break, sorry, I've got to stop can... you there. It's an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation. We do need to go for a break. If you would like to join the conversation, ask a question, 34519, our SMS line, 061-895-1019. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. We are in conversation with Tovi Steiner and Esther Hecht. We're talking about all things attachment and um, as always, whenever we've had this discussion, and I, I recall last time, Esther, that we had you on the show, sometimes like you kind of like, in a sense, feel overwhelmed. Certainly, I, I, I'm, I feel that to an extent that, wow, you know, maybe I didn't get absolutely everything uh, right before. So let's just go more into to, to, uh, what happens if a parent is listening and they realize they weren't truly attuned with their kids while they were younger. Like, what could they do now as their kids are older, maybe older uh, childhood teenagers or mothers themselves? I think this is what Peggy was also asking. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I think one of the things that's, <clears throat> sorry, very valuable is this, Peggy, I would say to hold two, two thoughts, two pieces of paper, each in your one hand. And the one is like what Esther says, that your parents did the best they knew how in that moment. And the other is to hold this other thought that maybe it wasn't enough in the way that you're seeing certain things in your life. And the way to go about that is really by saying, you know, as a child, one of the, one of the key triggers for us as adults is a childhood experience in which we were helpless. And that is the nature of being a child. You are mostly helpless. And now as an adult, it's about saying, I'm no longer helpless. I'm no longer, you know, waiting for the adult to do something for me. So I'm going to say, you know, the, this was the attachment dynamic. It was lacking in certain areas. And one of the things that we know is that there's intergenerational attachment styles. So we pass on the attachment style we had unless we have a consciousness to break that. So that's the first point. The first point is healing for yourself can come about through um, recognizing that there was a lack in the attachment that you had and, and wanting to change it. And I think in, in the process, like we talk about this rupture and repair, there may have been a rupture. And now the repair is for you to do for yourself, to find a way in which you feel like there's a sense of repair and a sense of wholeness that you could bring. Um, in terms of a teenager, um, there was something I saw this morning. Um, I follow Esther Perel on Instagram. I really, really love, um, I really love her books and her ideas. I think she says some of the most amazing things. And what she said this morning, I was thinking about, um, 
this idea of, you know, families and spending time together. And she said that routines are concrete, repetitive actions that help us develop skills while creating continuity and order. If you think about the morning routine of getting everyone ready for school. And then she says rituals are routines elevated by creativity, driven by intention and imbued with meaning. And I was thinking about the ways in which we could see, you know, within Judaism and I'm sure within many other religions and cultures and you could form a ritual within your own family outside of those boundaries. But there are ways in which you create meaningful rituals. We get so busy in our lives with routine, you know, and everyone doing the things they need to do to get the day going or to get the day closed and to find ways in which there's rituals that are they are full of intention and that they have meaning. And and if you think about a teenager or a kid that's a bit older now, you know, you've passed those those primary three years, um, reenacting an attachment experience is actually not as hard as you think. One of the things is physical proximity. So it's about sitting near them or being near them while they do something, attaching through sameness. And I think that kids who are on screens or kids who are doing something, take an interest in it. Actually find a way in which you find you know, even if it's sitting next to them while they watch a soccer match or, you know, they're playing a new game on their phone, take an interest and say, what is that? Um, and I think one of the things is significance that they feel like they matter. And that could be in a way in which they become more helpful. It could be a, w- a way in which you just say, you know, you acknowledge their significance. We're going back to all of the experiences that a baby would have felt. And, and this is something that Esther spoke about. And we've spoken about this before is this idea of that we love our children. And how do we let them know that we like them? And we let them know that we like them by a host of different things. It could be this ritual idea. It could be spending time with them. It could be um, being known. There's something about sharing something private, sharing not not necessarily a secret, but something that you've been struggling with. You know, today I was really thinking about that. I'm not always so patient and I'm really working on it. What do you think are some of my, and I always, you know, in one of the, steps in our course was to talk about triggers and I asked my kids what do you think mom's triggers are and um, took quite a while because they there was quite a list of the triggers that they could <laughs> tell me very very clearly which my triggers were and knew them very well and it created like it was it was also like a funny thing it created like a closeness with us that they were like they know me so well they could tell me exactly when things are not clean or someone's knocked something over and the cold drink goes all over the floor then they know exactly what's going to happen so I think that there's there's so many ways in which you can recreate that attachment experience with a child at any age. So this, this is- I love what you're saying about the ritual and routine because I share this in my course a lot, that what is the purpose of a routine? A purpose of a routine is predictability, and that's extremely important mm-hmm. for a child to have routine and predict- predictability. What's the purpose of a ritual? The purpose of a ritual is connection. So taking right. your everyday routines, your child running out the house and adding the little ritual of, we're going to do a high five. It could be a mm-hmm. little moment of eye contact touch, but now this is your thing. And I always tell the people on my course, think back at your childhood. Don't think back at the routines. Think back at the rituals. Like for me, you know, my mother coming to put me to sleep and singing a Yiddish lullaby. That, that moment of connection is something that whenever I think about brings a warm feeling to me, right? So mm-hmm. it's much, it's about how do we imbue these moments of connections into our routines? Mm-hmm. We don't have too much time left. We've just got like another question. What happens when you misread one of your children's calls for collections? You know, many times we're landing up punishing, we're shaming our kids. Mm. Maybe, maybe Mm. give an example in in like two, three minutes (laughs) on how to undo that. 
Okay, so I, I was just thinking this morning on my drive here of um, a time when I, I was I was doing my internship and somehow it came up with my supervisor that, you know, I, I just say to my son, we don't say hate. And she said to me, do you say, do you let him say love? And I looked at it obvious. I mean, that's ridiculous. Of course, I let my son say love. So she said, well, then why don't you let him say hate? It's It's just the other extreme of a strong emotion. And it was such a powerful moment for me because I thought about the fact that like what part of our children's emotions are so overwhelming for us that we don't allow them. And it's also something that came up in our conscious discipline course. And I've told this story before of um, this time that I had with my son and we went to exclusive books and we bought these books where you can color on with a, with a black marker and then rub it out. And then we bought a whole bunch of them. And then on the way home, he said, those books are so boring. And if I hadn't done my conscious discipline course, I can tell you the litany of um, <laughs> the list of, you know, this was us spending time together and you need to be more grateful. You know, the, the, the thought process went through my head. And then I looked at him and I said, you were hoping that they would be more challenging. And he looked mm. at me and he said, I was hoping that, yeah, I was, I was hoping they would be more challenging. And it was such an <laughs> aha moment for me because it was like, he's just sharing a big feeling and, the way that it would trigger me is something I may need to unpack about what it represents for me. But if you think about it in adult relationships, in intimate relationships, imagine you said to a partner, um, you know, I had a really hard day at work and they said, you know, it's COVID and there are lots of people struggling. Yuck, your experience would be so undermined and it would be so glaringly obvious to you as an adult. And yet as for children, their feelings, we, we don't often allow them. We often shame them. And I think that that moment for me, although there was – you know, many before moments and after moments that were definitely not me so calm and composed. I think in that moment, I was able to really see how easy it is, actually, if you take a breath, to allow their feelings to really have a strong place, just as we would like them to be. And the teaching moment of gratitude could come at a later stage, but in that moment, he needed to be seen. And I think that that's such a fundamental human need, which comes back to this concept of attachment of this like gazing into the child's eyes. There's an experience that we all have of being noticed and seen. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show, and we have had an absolutely amazing discussion about attachment. We are going to go for a little bit of a break, and we'll be back soon. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. We just have a couple of minutes left. Faggy, I know you have a, a, a last question. Uh, Tovi or Esther, whoever has the piece of advice, um, if you could le- leave one piece of advice for an adult who is recognizing that they may have had this lack of attachment or attunement in their parent, like in their parents or primary caregivers, what would that be? So I think we, we touched on this before that it's um, really not about the blaming, but understanding the behavior, our own behaviors, our own triggers and choosing and realizing that as adults, we're not hopeless anymore and we can actually make the choice of what to do and get the help and support that we need. And understanding that even if something affected our brain development or even if we've been labeled um, ADD or whatever it is, that we have the ability with the right help and the quality of our relationships to rewire our brains. And I very often say to parents with their children and, and teachers with their students that it's, it's spend less time stopping behavior and more time understanding behavior 
So that's when it comes to children. But I even think as adults, like we're very often like beating ourselves up and I wish I could be like this and do this differently. And it's really like, what if we took the moment and understood that so many things came before us, even generations before us and in the, in utero and in those first three years that we didn't have control over. And being a conscious adult means I get to choose what to do with, you know, my baggage and, and who I am today. So one thing that I just wanted to wrap up on is, when it comes to how do we practically connect with our children, what does authentic connections look like? It really com- is composed of four components. Number one, eye contact. Number two, touch. Number three, presence. And number four, in a playful situation. So when you're thinking, am I connecting with my child? What does that connection look like? See if you can incorporate as many of these components as often as possible. And as always, when you are so engaged, we can go on and talk forever, though we can't. Time always uh, catches up to us. Esther Tovi, if people would like to be in contact with you, how can they? Esther? So for, for myself, you can, um, you can find me on Instagram at the holistic educationist, um, or you can email me at the holistic educationist at gmail.com. Tova? And I'm available at Psych Central Ravonia. They have an Instagram page, and you can also check out their amazing website. Ladies, this has been really, really fabulous. As always, Faggy, you're a star at bringing star people together. Um, yeah. I certainly, as always, have learned a tremendous amount, and we thank, thank you for your time, for your input, and for your encouragement. Uh, I'm going to think a little bit more about my attunement right now. Um, <laughs> it's all about making connections, Adel. Exactly. The the, the strong, good connections with all our partners and our children. Absolutely. Absolutely. Connections govern behavior. Here's to a wonderful week ahead. And if you'd like to join our WhatsApp group, you can send an email to info at chayafm.com with your name and your number, and we will gladly join you into the conversation. Other than that, have a wonderful further day ahead. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Bye, everyone.